The millennium is at hand, was the words that rang out. Man has invented everything that can be invented. He has done all he can do. These are the words that were spoken at a church gathering in 1870. I'll say it again. The millennium is at hand. Man has invented everything that can be invented. He's done all he can do. But the presiding officer in the meeting objected. He suggested that a greater invention than we've ever seen would be made in the next 50 years. And so the bishop who had prophesied asked him to name such an invention. The reply was, I think man will learn to fly. Blasphemy was the response. Don't you know that flight is reserved for the angels? That bishop who made that bold statement and called the idea of blasphemy went home perplexed by that meeting, sat down at the kitchen table with his family and told his two sons about what happened. His name was Reverend Milton Wright. His boys were Orville and Wilbur. For you that know your American history, you're ahead of me. But Orville and Wilbur, by the time they were adults in 1901, the field of science had concluded that flight for man was an impossibility. But these two young bicycle shop owners from Dayton, Ohio, were determined to rise above unbelief. They had no government funding, as some did. They had no engineering degrees, as most did who were studying aviation. They had no formal training in aeronautics. But their hobby turned into a calling as they pursued the impossible. Several years later, on December 17, 1903, a little after 10.35 in the morning, Orville Wright made the first powered flight in human history as his brother Wilbur ran alongside the aircraft. Many of you knew what that image on the screen represented last week when you saw it. That's Orville Wright manning the first powered flight the image that you see here and the one that you see out on the banner in the lobby, that's the original drawings of Orville and Wilbur, their concept for their aircraft. And the pictures that you see are images that capture the imagination of what is possible when we're willing to work like it depends on us and pray like it depends on God. These images grip my heart as I was praying about this year for our church. One of the greatest inventions, no doubt, of the century. There was another man that came a little bit later than them. His name was Igor Sikorsky. He was a lad of 12 years old when his parents told him that competent authorities had already proved that human flight is impossible. Yet, like the Wright brothers, Sikorsky pushed on. He built the first helicopter. Later, he, he built a plant in America where he could manufacture his aircraft. And in that plant, he hung a sign on the wall. And this is what Sikorsky's sign read. According to recognized aerotechnical tests, the bumblebee cannot fly because of the shape and weight of his body in relation to the total wing area. The bumblebee doesn't know this, so he goes ahead and flies anyway. <laughs> what the Wright brothers and what Sikorsky determined to do in the fields of aviation, God wants you to do in the fields of faith. God wants you to erase impossible. There are too many of us that have believed a statement as fact.
that God just simply doesn't believe. God wants you to erase impossible from your vocabulary. I want you to look at a verse with me here. We'll put this on the screen, but it's in the Old Testament. The prophet Jeremiah prayed a prayer to God. In Jeremiah chapter 30, verse, uh, chapter 32, verse 17, and here's the prayer that he prayed. Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Can we just say those last six words together? Nothing is too hard for you. My hope for you today is that God would lift your faith to erase impossible, that whatever you might be facing, whatever you might be coming up against, that you would not allow your future or your purpose or your plans to be determined by other people's opinion or by past failure, but that you would let it be determined by the altitude that can be accomplished in the realm of faith. God wants to lift us higher than we can go in our own carnal minds. From faith to faith, from glory to glory. And Jeremiah prayed this prayer and he made this statement, nothing is too hard for you. Now that's a powerful statement all by itself, but I want to take a few moments here in the beginning of this message and I want to help you understand why it was so powerful in that moment. Let me paint the picture for you. Jeremiah is a prophet. He's often known as the weeping prophet because unfortunately he lived in a time where all of his prophecies were pretty much bad news and nobody liked him for it. If you had looked at his life the way we looked at ministries today, we would all agree he's a failure. He would not be on the cover of any Christian magazines. I can promise you that. You'd call him a failure. He was the weeping prophet. And, and at this point in his story, he's actually being held in captivity in the royal courtyard by his own king, not by a foreign king, by his own king, because they're so frustrated with the prophecies that he's giving. So here is Jeremiah. He's in captivity inside the walls, outside the walls of the city. The Babylonian army has already laid siege, ramp, siege ramps. They're about to attack. The Babylonians are about to come against the city of Jerusalem. So they've got them surrounded. No one is bringing imports in. Exports are not going out. Now there's a famine. They're out of food. Jeremiah's in captivity. The Babylonians have got them surrounded. This is the scenario that they're up against. And in the middle of all of this uncertainty, Jeremiah has already prophesied this is what's going to happen. The Babylonians are going to take us into captivity for 70 years. This is going to happen. They said, we don't want to hear that. He said, it doesn't matter. It's what's going to happen. But in the middle of knowing that's what's about to happen, he's in a place of captivity. In chapter 32 of Jeremiah, God gives him a message that makes absolutely no sense in the natural. Here's the message. We won't take the time to read it, but God says to him, Jeremiah, I want you to buy a field. In other words, while you're a captive and you don't have freedom and the enemy is about to take over all of this property and it's not going to be yours for at least 70 years, I'd like for you to take this opportune time to invest in real estate. <laughs> this makes no sense. It makes no sense to Jeremiah. It makes no sense to the people that are listening to Jeremiah say, we're about to be drug off into captivity, and this piece of property that I'd like to buy is about to be taken from us by the Babylonians. It's a contradiction to the very words that he said. And so he's, he's in an impossible situation with an impossible assignment, and yet he goes through with it because all he knows to do is trust the word of God. And for some of you, you just think too much. If all you knew to do was trust the word of God, how many of you know we'd be a lot better? We'd be better off. And so Jeremiah, in his, in his carnal mind, says, this makes no sense. And people are laughing at me, and people are scoffing, and people think I've lost my mind, and they think I'm crazy. And nevertheless, he goes through with it, right there in the courtyard. He signs the, the deed, he seals it, he puts it in an earthen vessel so that it will be kept. And he, and he buys this property. 
Faith isn't based on what's happening or on how we feel or on how we see it. Faith is based on God's word. And so that's what Jeremiah does. He just obeys the word. And and if all you know to do is just obey the word, it's enough. You know, it's been said before that faith is not believing in spite of evidence, but obeying in spite of consequence. That's so true. Some people think faith is just stepping out blindly, just stepping out on nothing, just taking a, a, a blind leap. I want to say that again. Faith is not believing in spite of evidence. It's believing in spite of consequence. It's an attitude that says, I'm just going to, I'm going to believe. I'm going to trust God. I'm going to do what God said, no matter how this plays out, whether it makes sense to me or not, whether it ends for my good or not, I'm just going to obey the Lord. And that's what Jeremiah does in this chapter. And it's after he's made this step of obedience that he prays this prayer that we read. He he just, he postures himself before the Lord in a place of prayer. He looks up to heaven and he declares who God is. Oh, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power, by your outstretched arm. It's a reality check. It's, it's, I don't know what's going on here. I don't know what's going to happen today or tomorrow. I don't know why God wants me to do what I'm doing or why he has me in the place that he has me, but I know who he is and I know he's in control and he makes this incredible declaration in the midst of all of that shackled and threatened by enemies and mocked by his own people. He says, nothing is too hard for God. And God responds to that prayer. And over the next several verses, God begins to speak a new word to Jeremiah. And the first part of the word is an affirmation. He tells Jeremiah, listen, everything that I told you was going to happen is going to happen. These people are going to be taken into captivity because they've given themselves to false idols because they won't worship me. So now they're going to be inundated with the idols of Babylon. And this land is going to be taken away, and it is going to be lost, and it is going to be a barren wasteland, and it's not going to be fruitful. And and Jeremiah is hearing all of this, and he's thinking, why am I buying property here? But then God speaks on a little farther. The Bible says in verse 27, Jeremiah 32, verse 27, I am the Lord, the God of all mankind, is anything too hard for me. Now, I'm sure you didn't answer because like Jeremiah, you knew that was a rhetorical question. He asked Jeremiah the same question that Jeremiah had just stated in the worship service. Sometimes God does that, doesn't he? We'll stand and we'll sing these songs about how good he is. And then, and then God will ask us later. So am I good? In other words, are you trusting me? Do you believe what you just said about me? He says, is anything too hard for the Lord? And then 10 verses later, he gives him this incredible promise of what he's going to do. Yes, the destruction's coming, but I'm going to restore the land. Yes, the people are being taken into captivity, but I'm going to bring the people back. This is going to be a fruitful land. This is going to be a a, a prosperous land. And then down in verse 42, and this is good news to a guy that just invested in real estate. Verse 42 says, this is what the Lord says, as I have brought all this calamity on the people, so I will give them all the prosperity that I have promised them. And once more, fields will be bought in this land of which you say. The world may laugh at your faith. The world may scoff at your belief, but God, but God, God can erase impossibility. The Bible says this in first Corinthians chapter one, verse 25, it says for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. 
How many of you know even what seems like a bad idea, if it comes from God, it's better than your best idea? That's what Paul was saying. The foolishness of God. It might seem crazy. It might seem counterintuitive. It, the math might not work out. It might not make sense on paper. It might not fit in with your 25-year plan. But if God said it, if God told you, God wants to elevate you. He wants to lift your faith above what you've heard and above what you can make sense of. And he wants you to begin to believe. He wants you to believe that he can erase the impossible. Mary understood this. When the angel Gabriel came to her in Luke chapter 1 to tell her that she was going to be the mother of the Messiah, and she asked that angel, how can this be? And he told her in Luke 1.37, he said, with, with man, it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. In, in other words, Mary, I know this doesn't make sense to you, but it doesn't have to because God's in it. And if God's in it, it's possible. Paul understood this. Paul, as a missionary of the gospel, he, he dealt with more than you or I could ever imagine, both in blessing and in cursing. Paul would go into some places and, and people would give him gifts and they would lavish him with praise and they would honor him and they would celebrate him. But then in most places he would go to, the people would turn on him. He'd be persecuted. He, he said in one place in scripture that he was beaten five times with rods, the same way that Jesus was whipped at the whipping post. Paul endured that five times. Can you just imagine what this man of God's back looked like? He said he had gone a day and night at sea, just floating adrift. He said, I know what it is to be well-fed, but I also know what it is to go hungry. I know what it is to have fine clothes, but I also know what it is to be naked to be left in the cold, to be abandoned by my friends and by those that serve with me. And yet, in the midst of all of those extreme conditions, whether I abound or whether I'm abased, he said in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Paul had learned God erases impossible. Maybe you've been in a situation where you go, I, I can't take this anymore. I can't handle the pressure. I can't handle the stress. I can't deal with this sickness any longer. But I have learned that I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Maybe you're in a situation and you're saying, you know, I, I can't, I, I can't, I can't pray for that child anymore. I can't love that child anymore. They are grown. They are not my response. I can't deal with it. I'm done. But I have learned, whatever the circumstance, that I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I'm going to keep coming up with examples until somebody says amen this morning. Okay, let's move on. God wants to give you a higher vantage point. He wants to give you a higher vantage point. And it's so important that you grab this. It's so important that we understand that God can erase the impossible. Otherwise, here's the temptation. We may disqualify ourselves from being a people of faith. Quickly, I, I want to just mention four things to you. Four insights about being a person of faith. If you have your Bibles, look with me in Hebrews chapter 10. Beginning in verse 32 through 35, writers talking about what faith looks like. And I just want to mention to you four things here so that we don't disqualify ourselves from being people of faith. And the first one is this. Faith is not easy. Come on, somebody say amen now. <laughs> faith is not easy. Look at verse 32 in Hebrews 10. It says, remember those early days after you had received the light, when you endured in a great conflict, full of suffering. Now, he's writing to people of faith, and he describes it as a great conflict, full of suffering. See, if you don't know that faith is not always easy, you'll start to think that when you have a great conflict or when you suffer, that you must not have faith. 
Don't disqualify yourself. Don't believe that suddenly you're not trusting God because things got tough. That's why we have to trust God. Because faith is not easy. Hudson Taylor, he was the pioneer missionary to China. He said this. He said, unless our exploits, unless there's an element of risk in our exploits for God, there is no need for faith. We have to have faith. Jesus' invitation to follow him was an invitation to to take up a cross. So sometimes faith is not easy. Say this after me this morning. Pleasure is not the measure of my faith. Can we say that again? Pleasure is not the measure of my faith. I mean, come on. A lot of people live that way. Let's be honest. You know, when it's good, when life is good, when the bills are paid, when everybody's healthy, I mean, God is good, right? And so we can celebrate and we give God thanks and we can be excited. But then the moment things don't go the way we hope, the moment we run into conflict, the moment we get an unexpected bill or an emergency, all of a sudden we just feel like like we've lost the battle, like we've lost sight of the Lord. And it's like our life is in a tailspin and it doesn't make sense anymore. Listen, pleasure is not the measure of faith. You can be trusting God and you can be in the midst of a great conflict. You can be holding on to faith in God and you can be enduring great suffering. Faith is not based on what I want. It's based on what God's word says. It's not based on what I'm sensing. It's based on what God is saying. Faith is not based on my preferences. It's based on his promises. Pleasure is not the measure of faith. The second thing that I see here is this. There will be people who look down on you for your faith. Some of you don't need to write that one down. You already know. You're thinking about them right now. People will look down on you for your faith. Look at the next verse. Verse 33 says, sometimes you were publicly exposed to insults and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. Can I just state the obvious this morning to anybody that's been serving Jesus for longer than a couple minutes? Not everybody's going to cheer you on for your expression of faith in God. Not everybody's going to rally behind you for your convictions. There was a reason that Jesus said in Matthew 7, it's a narrow gate. Broad is the road that leads to destruction. Narrow is the path that leads to life. And few there be that find it. It's a narrow road. Satan would love more than anything for you to just be convinced that you're walking that road alone. That's why the the critical voices are the voices that echo the loudest in our hearts. You can have 10 people that encourage you and support you and have one person that says something critical. And how many of you know that's the one you remember, right? Every time. That's the one that we remember. But sometimes people are going to look down on you for your faith. People are going to criticize you for, for your tenacity, To just trust God, especially when it doesn't make sense, especially when God asks you to do something that you can't rationalize. And you got to just throw up your hands like Jeremiah and say, nothing's too hard for you, God. I don't know why I'm doing this. I don't know why you led me this way, but nothing's too hard for you. So I'm just going to declare your sovereignty, that you rule the earth with your outstretched arm. And I trust you. Number three, faith gets you through the tough times. Look at the next verse. Verse 34 says, you suffered along with those in prison and you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. We looked at this verse in our Christmas series, but I I just have to mention it again. I I love the reality that, that it says they joyfully accepted They didn't just endure the confiscation of their property. They joyfully accepted it. Why would somebody do that? He says, because you knew that you had a better and a lasting 
possession. That's what faith does. Faith gets you through the tough times because faith transcends the momentary suffering. Faith transcends those things in our life that moth and rust are going to destroy anyway. Those temporal things, those things that are not lasting. Faith goes beyond that. And there's something that when we can lift our eyes above the circumstances that we're facing, we can just continue to trust God. It's faith that it pulls us through it. It gets us through it onto the other side. Whatever it is that's weighing you down in your life, I want to tell you today, faith is what will lift you up. Faith is what will get you above it. In his biography called God in My Corner, former heavyweight champion George Foreman told the story of an elderly woman, a godly woman that he knew, and he asked her, what's your favorite scripture? What's your favorite verse in the Bible? She didn't come out with Philippians 4.13, as I quoted earlier. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. She didn't say, if God be for me, who can be against me? She didn't say, greater is he that is in me than he that's in the world. She didn't say, all things work together for the good of those that love God and are called according to his purpose. When George Foreman asked her, what's your favorite scripture? She said, and it came to pass. That was it. That little phrase, it just sounds like a segue. But it's more than a segue. It's a hopeful statement. And it's threaded throughout all scripture. 436 times we see this phrase in the King James Version. And it came to pass. And so that little lady went on to explain. Why in the world would you say your favorite verse is, and it came to pass? Because she said, I know that whenever a trial comes my way, it didn't come to stay, it came to pass. Whatever you're going through, can I tell you the good news today? You're going through it. You're not staying there. It came to pass. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. She said, it came to pass. And I want to tell you today, faith will get you through. That's good theology today. Amen. There was a sultan, history tells us, that went to King Solomon, wisest, wisest king who ever ruled. And he asked him for a single sentence that would be true no matter what the circumstances are. One sentence that's always true, whether good or bad. And the wisest man in the world said this, this too shall pass. Isn't that true? I mean, even the best moments, we can't, we can't keep them. They, they fly by. And thanks to Facebook memories, we're constantly reminded. Like every, every day, I see, I see all the stuff that I'll never see again. All the great things that'll never happen again. Oh, yeah, this was a good day back in 07. Yeah. Just nothing special today, but wow, I had a great time back in 2009. But it's good, it's bad, it doesn't matter. It's going to pass. During the American Civil War, it was that phrase, this too shall pass, that became an anchor for President Abraham Lincoln. The president said this. He said, how much it expresses, how chastening in the hour of pride, how consoling in the depths of affliction. This too shall pass. I'm telling you today, if you're clinging to a promise, it's going to come to pass. It might feel like it's tarried. It might feel like it's delayed, but it will come to pass. And if you're going through a struggle, if you're dealing with a difficulty, the good news is today, it's going to come to pass. It's coming to pass. Faith gets you through the tough times. Let me tell you the fourth thing that I see here in this little paragraph. Number four, don't give up on your faith no matter what. Don't give up on your faith. Look at verse 35. It says, so do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. And I just remind you today, church, that faith is not a moment. It's a journey. 
Faith is not just an encounter. It's not just a declaration that we make with our mouth. It's something that we hold on to, and it's something that holds on to us. Don't give up. Don't quit your faith, no matter what. He says down in verse 39 at the end of this chapter, he says, we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. We have faith. We hold on to faith. We don't let go of our faith. Here's what Isaiah said in chapter 40, verse 31. He said, those who hope in the Lord are those that wait upon the Lord, those that don't let go, those that don't give up, those that don't throw in the towel, but they hope in the Lord. They will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary, and they will walk and not faint. God wants to lift some of you on eagles' wings today, and all you have to do is just believe and not doubt. Just not give up. Just don't stop holding on to faith. Wait on the Lord. Hope in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. And he will lift you up. Faith isn't easy. Sometimes people are going to look down on you for it. But it'll get you through the tough times if you don't quit. You know, I was thinking about this theme of aviation, and the reality is that troubles are like gravity. They affect all of us, don't they? On any given Sunday, it could be somebody else in this room that's having the worst week of their life. That's the way trouble is. Even Jesus, I mean, he lived a perfect life, never sinned. He was crucified for it. Trouble comes to everyone. The good news for the child of God is we don't have to stay down. We, we can get lift. We can catch a current. It's possible for us. Listen to these promises quickly. I just want to throw these out to you. I want you to listen. When you hear these scriptures, I want you to listen for the lift in the promise. John 16, verse 33, Jesus had just said a lot of difficult things. And then he says, I've told you these things so that in me, you may have peace in the world. You will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. John 10 and 10, he said, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy, but I have come that you may have life and that you may have it to the full. 1 John 4, 4, you, dear children, are from God, and you have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Last week, we, we started this year, and I just encourage you to lift your hands. We lifted up our hands to God. It's just an outward sign of, of what was happening in our hearts, that, that we're lifting our hands to God in praise and in, in impurity and practically in service and, and powerfully in demonstrations of God's spirit. Today, I want to challenge you to lift your eyes. Lift your eyes today. Look up. Don't fix your gaze on what you can see. Don't fix your gaze on, on what is seen, but begin to focus on the unseen. Here's how Paul described it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18. He said, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary. But what is unseen is eternal. What is seen is temporary. Some of you have you've, you've been letting what is seen control your emotions. You've been letting what is seen determine your faith. You, you've been letting what you can see, what everybody else can see, determine your altitude today. Paul says, don't focus on what is seen. Focus on what is unseen. Lift your eyes. Lift your eyes. Can I tell you what is seen or what is, what is eternal? He said, not on what is temporary, but what is eternal. This word right here is eternal. Jesus said, heaven and earth is going to pass away, but my word will remain forever. It will never pass away, Matthew 24, 35. It's never going anywhere. My word is 
eternal. The psalmist in, in Psalm 121. The psalmist got this revelation and he said these words. He said, I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Now understand what he's saying. Some people read that verse and they say, I, they, they read it out of the King James and it says, you know, I lift up mine eyes to the hills from whence cometh my help. And, and you can think that your help's actually coming from the hills. He's actually saying the opposite of that. He says, I lift my eyes up to the hills. And you know when he did that, you know what he saw? He saw altars and temples that had been built on all the hilltops to false gods. Rather than going to Jerusalem, where God had promised to meet with the people, the people were going out of convenience to the local altars. They were going up to the hills to worship false gods. And so the psalmist says, I lift up my eyes and I, I see those. And I'm wondering, where's my help come from? But he doesn't just lift his eyes as high as the mountains. What he's really saying is, I lift my eyes higher. I looked up to the mountains. Where's my help come from? It certainly doesn't come from them. No, my help comes from the Lord. And what he's saying in that moment is, I lift my eyes above the mountains. I lift my eyes to the Lord, who's the maker of the mountains. He's the maker of heaven and of earth. And if I can encourage you to do anything today, it's look up, look higher, lift your eyes above your circumstances to the one who controls them, the one who made heaven and earth. What does that look like to walk by faith and not by sight? Well, in terms of aviation, it means your instrument rated. Right, Christian? I had a few conversations with Captain Bears Cove back there from Southwest Airlines. And we got to talking about what it means to be instrument rated. You know, a pilot that is certified to fly solely by the instrument panel is a pilot that's instrument rated. When you first learn to fly, it's only in the daytime. It's only in fair weather conditions. It's only when you can see clear skies. But how many of you know every day serving Jesus is not a sunny day? And if you just learn how to fly and the weather's bad and you're losing visibility or, or darkness is coming, you're grounded because you're not instrument rated. You don't know how to fly. You've been visual flight certified, but you don't know how to fly by the instrument panel. And there's a lot of Christians that live their lives that way. As long as I can see where I need to go, I'm fine. As long as I can see what God's doing, I'm good. As long as the sun is shining and the clouds have parted, I'm going to just serve Jesus. I'm going to worship Jesus. I'm going to lift up my praise. But as soon as the fog rolls in, our faith gets grounded. Instrument-rated Christians are the ones that can find their way out of the clouds without sight because they know how to read the instruments. Can I just tell you today, trusting God in the storms means that, that you've become an instrument-rated Christian, that you've learned how to walk by faith and not by sight. Christian was telling me that an instrument-rated pilot has to learn not to fly by the seat of their pants. In other words, you have to learn to not trust your feelings. Because if you don't have visual perspective, vertigo will mess you up. You'll think you're banking hard right and you're just going straight. You'll, you'll think you're climbing high into the sky and you're diving straight into the ground. Because you don't have visual perspective. That's exactly what happened to John F. Kennedy Jr. Back in 1999, some of you remember the story. He was a good pilot, but he wasn't instrument rated. He was only certified to fly under visual flight rules. And so on the evening of July 16th, 1999, he and his wife and his sister-in-law were scheduled for a short flight out to Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts from Jersey. I think it was his sister-in-law who was running late, pushed the flight time 
later into the evening. And so approximately seven and a half miles west of Martha's Vineyard, Kennedy's plane crashed. It nosedived into the Atlantic Ocean. The National Transportation Board concluded that he fell victim to spatial disorientation while descending over the waters at night and he lost control of the plane. Maybe he was flying by the seat of his pants in that moment. Maybe he, maybe he thought he was going straight. Maybe he thought he was climbing. But if he had been instrument rated, he would have been able to navigate through the dark night. He wouldn't have crashed the plane. Can I just challenge somebody today? Don't let your emotions deceive you. Your pleasure is not the measure of your faith. Don't, don't let the, the doubts that are rolling in, don't let the clouds that are rolling in, don't let the long, dark nights of the soul cause you to crash and burn. Trust God. Trust his word. Set your eyes on the instrument panel. His word is true. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It shall not return void. It will accomplish those things that God set it forth to accomplish. You can trust in his word. His spirit will guide you today. You say, how much faith do I need? How much do I need to be able to do that, to get through this next thing that I'm facing? All you need is a seed. That's what Jesus said. All you need is a seed. You know, as I was reading about the Wright brothers, I found it interesting that it was actually their father, Reverend Milton Wright, who had said the idea of human flight was blasphemous. It was him that actually sparked the desire for them to fly. He came home one day with a toy for his boys. It was one of those little plastic, his wasn't plastic, it was probably wooden, but it was one of those little propellers. Have you seen them? It's just a little propeller with a stick and you spin the stick in your hand and it flies through the air. And that little toy was a seed that got down inside of them. They became fascinated with the idea that they could take to the skies, that they could build some kind of plane, some kind of aircraft that they could fly. And when it comes to faith, listen, today all you need is a seed. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 17, there was a man that had come to Jesus and he, this man knelt down in front of Jesus and he pleaded with him, Lord, Lord, heal my son. This man's son had been suffering from seizures. He said sometimes he, he throws himself on the ground and sometimes he throws himself into the water or he throws himself into the fire. It's almost killed him. He said, Jesus, I brought my son to your disciples and I asked them to heal him, but they couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. And Jesus replied, in Matthew 17, verse 17, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of the boy and he was healed in that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and they asked, why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, because you have so little faith. Maybe you felt that way today. I just don't have enough faith. How much do I need? Jesus goes on a little farther. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Can we just say those six words together today? Nothing will be impossible for you. Now, the mustard seed was thought to be the, the smallest of all the seeds, and it grew into a large plant. So Jesus is saying, you don't need much. All you need is a seed. A seed can move a mountain if it's planted in faith, if it's planted in the promises of God, if it's planted in God's ability and not your own. 
All you need is a seed and God can erase impossible. All you need is a seed and faith will carry you through. All you need today is a seed of faith. And if you'll lift your eyes in faith, trusting the instrument panel, not the forecast, not the circumstances, not the difficulties, but looking to the author and the finisher of our faith, all you need is a seed of faith today. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, King Hezekiah said these words. We prayed this Wednesday at our prayer gathering. He said, Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And for some of you, that, that needs to be your prayer today. An acknowledgement that says, God, I, I can't figure this thing out. Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Some of you, you, you've looked, you've looked for answers, but you've never looked higher than the hills. I lift my eyes to the hills and then you lower them again in frustration. But I would just echo with the psalmist today. Lift your eyes higher. Lift your eyes higher. Look up beyond the hills. Look up to the one who makes the heavens and the earth by his own great power and his outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for God. As we end this service today, I want to give you an opportunity to pray a prayer of faith. Listen, if, if you're here today and you don't have a relationship with God, the only way you can be saved is expressing faith. Not, not faith in what you can do, but faith in what God has already done. That's what the word of God tells us in Romans 10. If we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. So wait a minute, you mean I don't have to do anything more than that? No, that's faith. Faith is believing. See, every other religion of the world is spelled D-O. Do this, do that. Try harder. Climb higher. Christianity is D-O-N-E. It's finished. The price is paid. Jesus has done it all. And so if, if you're here today and you don't have a relationship with God, your prayer of faith simply needs to be a prayer that Jesus would save you. That he would save you. And if you're here today and you need to pray that prayer, I want to lead you in that prayer right now. Could we just bow our heads all over this room? Close your eyes for just a moment. Just to, to honor this moment before the Lord. I want to challenge you to be honest right now with God. Just be honest with God today. If you're here and you don't have a relationship with the Lord, we're going to pray this prayer of salvation. And if you want Jesus to save you, you want to express faith today in his forgiveness for you through Jesus. I want you to pray this prayer with us. Pray it out loud. Pray it with confidence. Pray it like you believe it. Come on, church. Let's all pray it with them right now. Dear God, thank you for sending Jesus to die for my sins, to be my salvation, to be my hope. God, today, I repent of my sin. I'm sorry that I've offended you, but now I turn to you with faith, and I ask you to rescue me, forgive me, make me brand new, give me a new life in Jesus. Today, I am saved in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Now listen, if you just prayed that prayer today for the first time, or maybe, maybe you've prayed it before, but you haven't lived it, and today you're saying, to no, today's the day. I'm starting today. I'm making a fresh commitment today. I'm going to honor God with my life. Bible says if we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth, we're saved. That means if you just prayed that prayer, you're saved. And the Bible says the moment one person is saved, 
The Bible says there is rejoicing in the heavens. There's rejoicing right now in heaven because of the decision you just made. You just set off a party in the heavenly realm. And we want to celebrate with you. We want to celebrate what God's done. So listen, if you prayed that prayer and you just made that commitment to make Jesus the Lord of your life, I'm going to ask you to do something. In just a moment, we're going to close this service. I want to invite you to step out from where you are and to come down to this altar so that somebody can pray with you. In fact, I'm going to ask some of our prayer team to come right now and to just stand in this front because there's many others of you today. You don't have a need for salvation, but you have been flying blind and you feel like you're at a place of spiritual vertigo right now. You don't know which way's up. You don't know what God's doing or, or if he's doing anything or if he's abandoned you. And today, the Holy Spirit wants to make you an instrument-rated Christian. He wants to teach you how to trust his promises and trust his word, to walk by faith and not by sight. And if that's you today and you say, Pastor, I've been struggling, I've been struggling, we want to pray with you today. So church, I'm going to ask you, can we stand all over this room? Let's stand together. As I pray this closing prayer, if you prayed that prayer of salvation, or maybe you say, I just need somebody to pray with me today. While I pray this prayer, I'm going to invite you to just step out from where you are and come to this altar. Let one of these brothers or sisters agree with you in prayer today that God's going to move in your life. Come now, even as I pray. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity that, Lord, we could be in your house today. God, that even on this snowy Sunday, God, we see a, a visual reminder that, Lord, though our sins be as scarlet, Isaiah declared, you make them whiter than snow. Thank you, God, that you cover us with a beautiful blanket of grace. And God, today, Lord, I pray that you would lift up the weak hands today. As we lift our eyes to you, God, give us that lift of your spirit. God, help us to navigate through the dark seasons, to know that this too shall pass, that you are faithful to keep your word, that you will bring to completion everything that you started in us. So God, today, we thank you. God, we worship you. We celebrate your goodness in our lives. And we give you praise for it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said amen today. Amen. amen. Come on, let's just give God praise one more time.